Testing one, two. You guys got me? All right. Good morning, Hope Christian Church. Good to see you guys. Uh, so I'm not Todd Cravens. Uh, maybe some of you are expecting a little bit more hair. I think. Um, actually, a lot, a lot more hair. Uh, Todd came to me on Thursday and uh, said, hey, I, I think I need to fly to Louisville. So his mom is in the hospital, not doing well, and so he's in Louisville. We want to pray for him, um, for sure. And, uh, you know, I don't preach that often, you know, throughout the year, so uh, it's not like I've got a sermon in my back pocket. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, but what I do have, the Lord has given me a word over this past year, and I'm actually really excited to share, share it with you. And um, so I'll just warn you, it's, um, it's been mulling around in my, my head for about a year now, so I'm, I'm going to back the dump truck up, just unload a word on you. And so <laughs> I have no idea how long this is going to take. But, um, but anyway, I'm really excited. I do think that the Lord has a word for us this morning. Uh, I thank Him for what He has shared with me and I uh, just pray that maybe someone here this morning could be blessed by it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we start this morning. Father God, we thank you that uh, you are amassing a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to give you praise because you are worthy of our praise. You are the lamb worthy to open the scroll. Father, we pray for your presence. Lord, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit here this morning, just like the Spirit hovered above the waters when you created this universe. Father, would your Spirit hover in this place? Lord, would your Spirit so evident, palpable among us this morning? Father, I pray that you would use me, Lord, as a vessel. Lord, speak to your people this morning. We pray through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, by all accounts, uh, 2022 was a difficult year for me and my family. It started off with a bang. We all managed to get COVID. And we just gotten back from Brussels visiting Rahel's family there. And her brother uh, also contracted COVID. Now, her brother, David, uh, a few months earlier, had just been diagnosed with late-stage stomach cancer. And he found himself uh, in the hospital for the first month of 2022 in a, in a, in a Brussels hospital, uh, fighting for his life. And the Lord miraculously saved him. And by miraculously, I mean miraculously. Uh, we'll have to tell you, that's a story for another day. But the next few months saw Rahel flying back and forth to Brussels, David undergoing a much-needed surgery to remove a tumor, a large tumor from his stomach, and me at home working a part-time job trying to juggle three kids while somehow finding time to faithfully serve this church as a new elder. That summer, we had a chance to visit David again as a family. He lost a lot of weight. He was in constant pain. He was still having a lot of trouble swallowing. We sat with him. We cried with him. We laughed with him. We sung for him and hoped with him. Not having been around someone so near death, I don't think any of us knew exactly how close he was. Just one short year earlier, he was a vibrant, strong, full of joy person. He never lost his joy, by the way, or his wit. And we just thought, surely, God, you're going to answer our prayers, right? You're going to spare his life. And that's what we thought. But 
It wasn't to be. David went to be with the Lord just a few short weeks after we left. To compound the grief, the hospital in which David was being treated refused to give him routine end-of-life care, engaging in some of the most callous acts of injustice that I've ever witnessed or read about. Again, that's a story for another day as well. With the dirt still unsettled and the flowers still fresh on David's grave, we got news that Rahel's dad had fallen, and he was in the hospital. Now he's lying face down in the ICU, falling in and out of consciousness. Almost one month to the day after David's death, Rahel's father passed away. Before I knew it, I was back on the plane with the three kids. Rahel had already gone before us to attend my father-in-law's funeral. He was buried just two grave sites down from his son, two others having died in that short one-month period since David's death. Upon returning in November, I then spent the next month at home with the kids while Rahel, her mom, and her youngest brother, now her only brother, worked on settling their dad's affairs in Ethiopia. Top things off, the kids once again contracted some pretty rough bouts of COVID, which meant that we couldn't visit my family in the States, which we normally do for Thanksgiving. And sitting at a bare kitchen table on Thanksgiving Day with nothing, I'll never forget this, nothing but a turkey pot pie sitting on the table, who uh, Steve and Mary Brown uh, graciously brought by our house. No extended family, no Rahel, three sick kids. I was at perhaps the lowest point of my life. Now look, I I don't tell you this story for you to feel sorry for me or or my family, and please know that Rahel and I firmly believe that God was in all of the details of that year. We're convinced. He was working all things for our good and for His glory. In fact, we were incredibly blessed by the countless acts of kindness from this body. But I tell you this story because it precipitated in me a desire for something that I never expected, but I was ready for, and that's rest. Rest. I decided at the start of 2023 that I would dedicate the year to finding rest. I, of course, had no idea what this meant or how I was going to find something that had been so elusive to me all of my adult life, but I was determined after having spent the last year in a perpetual state of restlessness to spend the year in search of whatever it meant to rest. So it just so happened that at some point in 2022, I'd read a book that addressed the need for Christians to slow down in the midst of this chaotic modern world. The title of that book was The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Maybe some of you have read that book. And it was written by an admittedly burned out pastor in Portland, Oregon by the name of John Mark Comer. So in his book, Comer highlights what all of us here in the Western world already know, we are far too busy. This busyness has led to a restlessness that's unprecedented in human history. One recent study, for example, 39% of Americans reported being more anxious now than they were a year ago. And like Neil Postman, Postman presciently predicted almost 40 years ago, we're quite literally, literally amusing ourselves to death. What we were told is that the ticket to a successful life is staying busy, is staying ahead of the curve. When the reality is, it's, it's more like Oliver Berkman says in his book, 4,000 Weeks, you won't ever solve busyness with more busyness. Just ask my wife, I, I say that all the time to her and to me, will not solve busyness by becoming more busy. It doesn't work. 
Behind every one email that you reply to, I guarantee you there's going to be six more. That's just the way it works. The sad truth is, though, is that busyness actually threatens to kill all that we hold dear. Author Wayne Muller, in his book, Sabbath, Finding Rest, Renewal, and Delight in Our Busy Lives, he puts it this way. He says, a successful life has become a violent enterprise. We make war on our bodies, pushing them beyond their limits. War on our children because we cannot find enough time to be with them when they are hurt and afraid and need our company. War on our spirit because we are too preoccupied to listen to the quiet voices that seek to nourish and refresh us. War on our communities because we're fearfully protecting what we have and do not feel safe enough to be kind and generous. War on the earth because we cannot take the time to place our feet on the ground and allow it to feed us, to taste its blessings and give thanks. What is Muller getting at? He's saying that we've lost the ability to give attention to anything, to be present in the now. With the rise of social media and smartphones, uh, which by the way, if you don't already know this, uh, kids don't think in terms of smartphones. Um, if any phone without an app is not a phone, by the way, according to my 12-year-old, any phone without an app is not a phone. Uh, flip phones are not phones. Uh, We've lost the ability to concentrate for more than one millisecond. Scientists say that the average iPhone user actually touches his or her phone over 2,500 times a day. I was so upset the other day. I took my oldest daughter, Esther, to the orthodontist, and um, we were enjoying some much-needed daddy-daughter time. We're sitting in the waiting room. She's resting her head on my shoulder. I mean, what, it doesn't get any better than that as a dad. <laughs> All of a sudden, one of the assistants came in and ushered us to the back, and she told us that, you know, it's going to be a little bit longer before the orthodontist can see her, uh, but she thought that we might prefer to be in the back. I was like, okay, let's, let's do this daddy-daughter thing in the back. Um, but then she hands Esther a remote and some headphones and turns on the TV above her head. <laughs> Here's how to find Disney+, Plus, and daddy-daughter time was over. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I was, oh man, I was crushed inside. Not only has our society eliminated the possibility of rest and meaningful conversations through the use of distractions, but we've also found ways to monetize restlessness. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but think of the catalogs and all the store leaflets that you're no doubt getting inundated with right now this holiday season. It's likely that somewhere in those catalogs, you're going to see a photo of a mom and a dad peacefully lounging on that plush, gel-infused memory foam mattress that you've always wanted, their kids bringing them breakfast in bed on that walnut tray that you know that you need. Marketing departments everywhere know that you crave a life of calm, of peace, of margin. I just encountered this the other day while I was, I was uh, shopping in a camping store with my family, and while I was waiting, I noticed a cookbook on recipes to use with your family while camping. And on the front cover was a family huddled around a small camp stove, 1999, by the way. Everyone's sitting on a perfectly sized tree stump. Everyone's smiling, kids oozing calm and serenity. One holding a stick with a perfectly put together s'mores on top of it. Mom serving up a full course meal that she just put together with twigs and you know, some fish. <laughs> From the stream. Now, maybe this is what camping, uh, maybe this is what a camping trip meal looks like with your family. Um, 
But I can assure you, this exact scene has never played out even at our dinner table, yet alone in the middle of the woods. What are these advertisers selling us? They're selling us rest. They're selling us rest. Comer in his book likes to say that this new speed of life that many Christians have become accustomed to isn't Christian at all. In fact, it's anti-Christ. If you think about it, rest is actually central to being a Christian. What's the highest value? What's the highest value in God's economy? It's love. Love. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But guess what? Love is time-consuming. You remember Paul's first descriptor of his definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. That's right. Love is patient. And patience requires rest. All parents of small children and married couples and long-term friends know, know this well. My worst moments as a father and husband have come in those times in which I'm most tired. Everything is a big deal. Every small offense just crumbles me, crushes me. In contrast, I can put up with almost anything when I'm rested. Oh, the, the cat just knocked over the water bowl for the third time this week, and the puddle, there's a puddle of water sitting there for, for days, and nobody mentioned it to me and on our hardwood floor. Oh, that's no problem. Guys, don't, don't, don't worry. I'll clean it up. It's not a problem. So... <laughs> All kidding aside, we, we all know this to be true. And while, while I'm sure it's the case that some require less sleep than others, we all could use a bit more sleep. But true spiritual rest, as I've come to find out, is more than just eight hours of sleep a night. The problem of being physically exhausted is certainly part of the problem. But what about the restlessness of our souls? How do we recover rest for our souls? After my year of restlessness and my dark night of the soul in 2022, this is what I really craved, not just eight hours of sleep a night. What does Augustine, writing centuries ago, really mean when he says our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God? Well, I think a good place to start is in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. So turn with me, if you will, Matthew 11, verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty eight, which Todd will be preaching on soon. Matthew says this, Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage in the Message Translation. He says it like this. He says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I love that line. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
makes me think of David, right? When we think of David refusing to put on the coat of armor that his fellow soldiers assured him that he needed to fight the enemy of God, Goliath. It makes me think of a loving parent who doesn't burden their child with things that are too heavy for them to process at an early age. Like many of you, I I grew up with this verse. I'd heard this verse a million times, and every time I heard it, I felt a sense of calm inside. But I got to be honest, I had no earthly idea what Jesus meant when he said his yoke was easy. You see, the secret of the easy yoke, as it turns out, is actually quite obvious. Here's how Dallas, Dallas Willard talks about this secret. He says, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. Simplified, as John Mark Comer puts it, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. The way of Jesus is just that. It's a way. It's more than just a set of ideas or an ethical code for living. It's a lifestyle. And here's the kicker. Your life is a byproduct of your lifestyle. Let me say that again. Your life is a byproduct of your lifestyle. James Clear, uh, some of you may be familiar with, he wrote this viral book on habits called Atomic Habits. And I think he gets to the core of what this means when he writes that something becomes habitual when you begin to identify yourself with that habit. There's a moment, Clear says, usually after about six months of doing something consistently, in which you say to yourself, I am said habit. I am a person who works out. I am a person who is generous etc. This is the point at which the habit has stuck. In the same way, if you want the easy yoke of Jesus, you must put in the time it takes to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Only then will you begin to say to yourself, I am a follower of Jesus, and begin to experience the rest that Jesus talks about. Now, some some of you may know that I play guitar. When I was younger, um, you know, guitar playing was, was one among many hobbies that I had, uh, but I always dreamed of being this expert guitarist. For those of you who play guitar, you know, there's kind of this honeymoon period, first four to six months, you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm different than everybody else. You know, I just learned 90% of all praise and worship songs in like four months, right? So this, this is going to be a cinch. But everyone knows there's this plateau, right? You hit the plateau, uh, it's all just a tease. The plateau comes quickly. You're like, oh, bar chords. Oh, I don't know about that. Picking, strumming patterns. You know, that cool lead riff that you like. No, you can't play that. (laughs) Um, It actually takes hours of practice. That's the hard truth. It takes hours of practice. Once I hit this plateau, I actually remember when I was younger, on more than one occasion, having this thought. Jesus, if when I wake up in the morning, if just somehow, miraculously, if you could just give me... The, the guitar playing ability of John Foreman from Switchfoot. I know you know Switchfoot. It's my favorite band. If you just give me that ability, I promise you, I will use my guitar playing skills for your glory. I, 
to use one of our own musicians as an example, uh, I wanted the ability to play an instrument like Nate Brown plays the cello without putting in the time and hard work that it takes to play a cello like Nate Brown. <laughs> All right, so I, I know what you're thinking now. Hours of practice, hard work. Hey, Chris, this doesn't sound like rest. Well, yes, but that's because we've been trained to think that rest is a day off. The ability to sleep in or binge on Netflix documentaries until we reach this comatose state. This is certainly how I viewed rest for much of my life. But hear these words from scholar Frederick Bruner about the nature of the easy yoke. He says this, he says, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. Guys, did you catch that? Jesus gives us a new way to carry life. He offers us equipment rather than an escape. The world offers escapes. Jesus offers equipment. And the beauty of this equipment is that it's actually free. There's no subscription fee attached. The only question now is, what does this equipment look like? Well, as God would have it, we just finished walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Todd's been preaching, and we've heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here at Hope. And while it may be more, it certainly is not less than obedience to Jesus' teachings in that sermon. I want you to look with me again at Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 if you have your Bibles. If you keep reading in your Bibles, you'll notice something very important. You'll notice that Jesus, immediately after saying that his yoke is easy, begins to talk about the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience with the Sabbath practice growing up in the Southern Baptist South was non-existent. It was never talked about. It wasn't until earlier this year, after learning that Comer had started a ministry called Practicing the Way, that looked at nine ancient practices of Jesus in the early church, that I began to explore the ancient practice of the Sabbath. With this in mind, I just want to share a few things with you that we've been learning as a life group over these last couple months about the Sabbath practice and why I believe that following Jesus' practice of Sabbath-keeping offers the kind of rest that we all need and crave. So first off, the word Sabbath or Shabbat in Hebrew, simply means to stop. Or in some cases, it can also be translated to delight. The idea behind this is simple. No matter what you're doing, what you have coming up, one day a week, you just stop. You stop the hustle, you stop the grind, you stop the consumption, you stop the use of devices, you just stop. Like I said, this is an ancient practice in fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning. So let's look at Genesis. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. 
Where's Wes? Man, you're right, it is hot up here. I think it's hotter up here <laughs> than, than out there somehow. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. You guys still with me? All right, good. Okay, so it says this, On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Comer, in his book, points out what is perhaps the most clear and astonishingly insightful thing about this passage, and that is the simple truth that God rested. Let that sink in. Now, when I first began thinking about what it might look like for our busy family of five to observe the Sabbath, a million excuses for why this could never happen with our family popped into my head. But at the end of every one was a still, small voice whispering to me, God rested. God has just completed the task of literally creating the entire universe in six days. So what does he do on the seventh? He creates rest. He creates rest. He builds a rhythm, a syncopated beat, work six days, rest one, into the fabric of creation. And by consequence, to fight this rhythm, this design, leads to restlessness. Beyond this, what can it possibly mean that God rested? Was he burnt out? Was he tired? Mm Mm-mm. If you remember, I mentioned earlier that the Hebrew word Shabbat can also be translated to delight. And in the Sabbath practice material that we've been looking at as a life group, we discovered that there's actually four stages of Sabbath keeping that often build on one another. The first stage is to stop. The second is to rest. And the third is to delight. And then one we'll talk about in just a minute is worship. Now, there's something transformative that happens when you stop and rest in God. You begin to delight in His creation, and most importantly, delight in Him. In short, after creating the universe, God spent a day delighting in what He had created. It's a far cry from delighting in creating the universe, but it's kind of like after you've mowed your grass, right? If you're like me, after you mow the grass, you grab some water, you go to the back porch, and you just sit back and just admire all that you've done, until there's that one spot. There's always that one spot (laughs) that you missed. But you just delight in in what you've just done. You delight in that nicely mowed grass. Now, if you do a study uh, on the Sabbath in Scripture, you're going to find that there are actually several commands in Scripture, several Sabbath commands in Scripture. But what I'd like for us to do now is just to look at two of the most important ones. So turn with me, if you will, to Exodus Chapter 20, Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. One of the unique things about the Sabbath that I came to learn, the Sabbath command um, here, is that it's actually the only spiritual discipline that's commanded in the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but there's no command to go to church more often, read your Bible more, pray more. Nope, it's just the command to rest, which if you think about it, is, is actually a pretty gracious gift, right? It's like, it's, like asking your, it's like commanding your kids to eat ice cream. Like, oh man, I'll do that. Sign me up. Let's read verses 8 to 11, which by the way, if you were to break it down, 
this one command, if you, if you had like a pie chart of the Ten Commandments, this one command would be 30% of that pie chart. In Exodus 20, verse 8, we read this, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Now there's much that could be said here, but I want us to focus in on the idea that the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to the Lord. In other words, the Sabbath is a day set apart to the Lord. It's not supposed to look like the other six. It's a day that all the other six days point towards. It's a day I pray that our family will one day look forward to more than any other day of the week. It's a day to delight in God's goodness. Put simply, it's a day to worship. When I say worship, I don't just mean singing, although it can certainly include that. I mean that holistic all of life, presenting your body as a spiritual act kind of worship. A complete posturing of your heart toward thanking God for all that he's done. Now to help us understand the kind of worship that I'm talking about, I want to share with you what I believe to be one of the most profound definitions of worship that you're ever going to find. It comes from an unlikely source. It comes from novelist and English professor David Foster Wallace, who, to my knowledge, did not know Jesus. In a now famous commencement address that he gave in 2005, Foster Wallace says this about worship. It's a little long, but I think it's worth quoting. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. This is a non-Christian, as far as I know, saying this. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Foster Wallace begins his address uh, kind of comically with two young fish who encounter an older fish. The older fish, as he's passing by, says, uh, Morning, boys, how's, how's the water? Two younger fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one looks over to the other, And he goes, "Um, what the heck is water? 
The point of the fish story in his address is that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see. It's not a question of, do you worship? Like he says, we all worship. The question is, what are you worshiping? The answer to this question is all important because you are what you worship. The Sabbath is a means of reorienting our worship back to where it belongs, back to where it was created to reside. So the first Sabbath command we see is the Sabbath command to rest and worship. What about the second? Well, the second Sabbath command can actually be found in a somewhat unlikely place. You may not know this, but the Ten Commandments are actually listed twice in in the Old Testament, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. By the time Moses delivers the Ten Commandments to the people for the second time, they've just spent 40 years in the wilderness, and a new generation has come up, one with little memory of what God did at Mount Sinai. So turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 5. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 14. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 14, and you're going to see some subtle, some subtle differences and some monumental differences in the two lists, in the two Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, verses, verse 12. All right, let's see if you can catch the difference here. There we read, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. All right, stop right there. Do you notice the difference? Anybody notice the difference? Yeah, that's right. Moses uses the word observe rather than remember. You know, Moses is keen to have this new generation observe, observe the Sabbath day. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're to observe it like you would any other holy day, any other holiday. It's a day that you prepare for in advance. It's a day that you approach with anticipation, just like my kids are anticipating Christmas Day. If you were to ask anyone in our life group, what has been the most challenging part of trying to observe Sabbath observe a regular Sabbath, it's likely that they would say something to you along the lines of preparing for the day in advance. Preparing for the day in advance. Now, after several fails, and by fails, I mean epic fails at this, our family learned pretty quickly, you can't just fit Sabbath into your already busy schedule. It doesn't work. So the harsh truth is what? Well, the harsh truth is learning to rest actually takes work. Learning to rest takes work. Hebrews 4, 9 to 11 is a well-known verse on the Sabbath. And while we don't have time to unpack all that Paul is doing there, look at how Paul exhorts us to enter God's rest in Hebrews. I should say, um, not everyone believes that it's Paul, but the author of Hebrews says this. I think it's Paul. Okay, so Hebrews 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's right, he said it. Strive. Strive. Cultivating a spirit of rest actually takes intentionality. Now, we've got a long way to go Uh, as a family. But as a family, we're working on being more intentional about how we prepare for our time of Sabbath on Saturday nights. 
bringing up our calendars, putting off any outstanding emails or texts that can wait until Sunday night, finishing up sermons, and thinking of creative ways to delight in each other and delight in God. I love how Walter Brueggemann describes the countenance and way of being of those who take the time to abide in God's presence one day a week. He says this, People who Sabbath live all seven days differently. Maybe you know somebody like this. Good chance that they Sabbath. I'm sure this could be said of Jesus. He Sabbath. My hope is that this can one day be said of me and my family. Let's continue reading in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen and donkeys and other livestock, and any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. And he says this, Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. And that is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Here we see what amounts to a more significant shift from that earlier command in Exodus. At the close of the command, Moses reminds them of how God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. What's Moses doing here? Well, in essence, he's grounding the Sabbath command in Exodus in the creation story, in the idea that God has created a rhythm in which creation can flourish. And here he's grounding it in the Exodus story, the story of how the Israelites who were once slaves are now free to worship their God. But why? Why is he doing this? This was the first generation of Israelites to grow up in freedom. All their parents had known was the 24-7 back-breaking work of putting one large stone on top of another, always living in fear that their firstborn sons would be murdered, all in an effort to satiate the Egyptian empire's lust for more. Exodus tells us that Egypt even created entire store cities. Here in America, we've got storage units. Egypt created entire store cities to house all the excess wealth that they had accumulated. And guess what? Slaves don't rest, let alone Sabbath. Oppressed people are seen as nothing more than a line item on a spreadsheet, a commodity to be traded. Now, this is sounding eerily similar than you may see where I'm going. Egypt is alive and well. Our society's insatiable lust for more at the expense of others, more food, more clothes, more apps to simplify our lives, more stamps on our passports, is no different from that of Egypt. Listen to how John Mark Comer makes this connection. He says, just like Egypt... We're an empire built on the oppression of the poor. In America's case, and many other nations, literally. What's more, we found a way to do slavery guilt-free. We like to think slavery ended in 1865, but the reality is we just moved it overseas. Out of our sight, out of mind. There are 28 million slaves in the world today, more than there were ever trafficked in the transcontinental slave trade of the 18th century, the odds are your home or apartment is full of stuff 
that they've produced. A t-shirt, a pair of kicks, that clock on the wall, those bananas. He's talking to you and me. He's talking to the vast majority of Christians content to go through the motions of going to church and doing the occasional good deed. He's talking to those swimming in water who have no earthly idea what water is. So what, does this have, what does this have to do with the Sabbath? What does this have to do with the Sabbath? Here's the second command. Sabbath is what Walter Brueggemann likes to call an act of resistance. An act of resistance. It's an act of rebellion against Pharaoh and his army and the insatiable desire for more. It's a willingness to draw a line in the sand and say, enough. It's a way of saying, God is enough for me. On the way to uh, church this morning, I was listening to um, a group that I really like, Maverick City, and uh, they were singing the song, Gyra. Maybe some of you guys know the song, Gyra. There's some lines in that song that I really like. It says, I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. I know who I am. I know what you have spoken. I'm already loved. More than I could imagine. And that is enough. And that is enough. And one of the quotes that really resonated with many in our group as we've been studying the Sabbath practice is a quote by a theologian I really like, Marva Dawn. Dawn writes this. She says, We don't know how to feast because we don't know how to fast. We don't know how to feast because we don't know how to fast. The reality is, is that fasting is that feasting on God and His goodness is much harder when you've been stuffing yourself all week long with all that the world has to offer. Let me just tell you from experience, to fully enjoy the seventh day, it helps to slow down the other six. It really helps to slow down the other six. So as we, as we conclude this morning, I, I suppose the danger in preaching a sermon on rest is that I may unintentionally give the impression that, that I've got all of this figured out. If you think that's the case, I just invite you to come over to our house on Saturday nights at 5 p.m. That'll, that'll dispel any myth that we've got this thing figured out. But one thing I have learned over this past year of sojourning is that my soul will never be at rest until I'm content with what God has given me and where he's placed me. Catholic theologian Ronald Rollheiser is helpful here and he writes this, he says, so much of our unhappiness comes from comparing our lives, our friendships, our loves, our commitments, our duties, our bodies, and our sexuality to some idealized and non-Christian vision of things which falsely assures us that there's a heaven on earth. I can assure you there's not. When that happens, and it does, our, ten our tensions begin to drive us mad, in this case to a cancerous restlessness. True restfulness, though, is a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It's a living, it's, it is living an ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. Does that characterize you, brother and sister? We are restful when ordinary life is enough. And anybody else resonate with that line? We are restful when ordinary life is enough. How true that is. The other danger, I, I suppose, uh, in preaching on the need for Christians to practice the Sabbath is that I might give the impression that Sabbath is a binding command for all Christians. Well, suffice it to say, there's a lot of debate 
about this among theologians, about whether the Sabbath is actually mandated in the New Testament. But as Jesus so poetically puts it, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. A day of rest and delight each week is a gracious gift of God. What a gift. For this reason, my family and I have decided, no matter how imperfect the execution, to keep practicing the Sabbath. As we close, I want to encourage you as well to consider entering into this Sabbath rest that God has provided to you. It's going to look different at different seasons of your life. Just ask our life group members. But if you've reached your limit of Amazon packages on the front doorstep or notifications on your phone this Christmas, you may want to pray about what it would look like for you to take on the easy yoke of Jesus and find true rest for your soul. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. God, what a gracious gift the Sabbath is. So we thank you that you offer rest. The one thing that we all crave and you know that we need in our society today, Father, you have given it to us. All the way from the beginning, you built it into the fabric of of your creation. So Father, we thank you. Lord, would we enter into that rest Lord, you said you provide everything that we need. You said that you're faithful and you will help us and you will do it. So, Father, do it. Father, would we just say stop? Or would we just get to the point where you say, this is enough? No more. So, Father, I just pray that you, um, Father, would you work in our hearts? Father, would you give us rest that we so desperately need this Christmas season? We ask and pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.